Hey ladies, this is Jessica Iterole. And I'm Barbara Saunders Livingston. And we want to welcome you to the Seeking Holy Podcast. A podcast for women seeking Christ in a challenging world. As you listen, we hope you'll be encouraged to open God's word, to seek him, and strengthen your abiding relationship with Christ. Whether you find yourself with plenty of time or not enough time, pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab your Bible, and join us for Seeking Holy. Welcome, ladies, to our second episode of the Seeking Holy podcast. This week's series is titled Discovering Our Identity in Christ, Barbara's Testimony of Restoration. We're so excited to kick off this series, so we'll get right in. Before we get started, we want to give a subject matter warning. Some of the contents in this episode may not be suitable for children. So if you have little ears nearby, you may want to put in your headphones or wait until you can listen alone. So Barbara, I know that you have prayerfully been working diligently to thread several topics within your testimony, and we're just so excited that the time has finally come to get to hear you. Thanks, Jess. Yeah, so this episode, um, I'm excited to share how uh, the gospel literally has transformed my life, including and especially um, in important areas like my identity, my sense of significance, um, how I viewed my value and worth in life, and where I get my security and stability. Um, And so, you know, testimony, which doesn't have to be framed like this, but how I've always tried to break it down into three parts. What my life was like before Christ, how I came to know Christ, and what my life um, is like today and as a result of trusting and following Him and being born again. And so early in my walk with Jesus, when I first really entered the church body, I was handed this book and it's called The Search for Significance. Um, and the fact that that book sold over 2 million copies, I believe, is indicative uh, to the value placed really on one's sense of significance in life, you know, and the longing for or the search for this significance. Um, and we would all, you know, like there to be some sort of meaning to our lives, I think. Um, and my salvation in Christ finally put an end really to this search for the universal type of significance. Um, today, I seek and look to Him, the Lord, the one who literally became what gives my life significance and its meaning. Um, if there is any value or worth or purpose to my life, I assure you, it is only because of Jesus and His saving, sanctifying work in my life. I continue to search for the unseen one who sought me and he found me first uh, when I was at my worst. Uh, When we seek Christ, all those valuable, necessary things are really, you know, really are found in him. And so I'm going to share my story with these three perspectives in mind and how and where uh, my search for significance and identity and worth and value and security and stability, how those changed so dramatically before and then after my salvation. 
when speaking about things like this, you know, significance, identity, worth, and so forth, um, there's two very different and opposing perspectives, uh, which I have held and lived. Uh, one could say these perspectives are the difference between you know, night and day and darkness and light. And so there was a time in my life when you know I didn't sense my life had any worth. I certainly couldn't see any value in it. Uh, I didn't feel I had any significance, really. In fact, I didn't feel life had any meaning at all other than general misery. And then you die. You know, I was suicidal, mostly uh, from my preteen years to age 24, which is the age of my salvation. And so these deeply felt beliefs really influenced me to make a lot of detrimental decisions. And this general pervading sense of self-abasement, I believe, came from most of my early life feeling abandoned and rejected and you know, really unloved. I was put into uh, foster homes um, and then adopted at the age of three. Mine was considered a closed adoption, so I never really understood why I was adopted. I just figured the very people who brought me into this world who were supposed to love me and care for me and protect me, I just figured they didn't want me. It wasn't until years later that I learned um, the truth about my circumstances surrounding my adoption, which I'll talk about a little bit more later, but um, it did include some severe abuse and neglect. But it wasn't until those specifics were revealed that I realized, you know, I wasn't as much abandoned as I was rescued by a loving, gracious Heavenly Father who knew me in my mother's womb and already had a plan to ransom and restore me and my life. And this is why I titled my book, Rescued, Ransomed, Restored, From Damaged to Delivered. Um, but it would be many years later uh, before I would learn truth like this. Um, so because of uh, the sense of rejection that I carried, and um, I had a very difficult time bonding um, with my adoptive parents and family, um, and really anyone for that matter, uh, I learned to function at a somewhat normal level, but there was always this deep underlying you know, grief, I guess, pain and sadness. Um, the sense of abandonment, which I carried, plus, you know, adding some rebellion, which eventually entered my life when um, I was beginning to form a more independent sort of individual identity, um, which typically, you know, is very normal. Um, but it really took a toll on me. Um, I didn't like the feelings which were accompanied by being adopted and realizing, you know, at some level, something had to have happened, right, to cause me to not be with my biological parents. The rebellion and the rejection, these two spirits basically um, took over my life. Uh, the reality of all that hit me, and I took um, a lot of pills out of the medicine cabinet, and not really wanting to die at this point, but desperately wanting something to change. And this decision um, began my institutionalization. Over a period of the next almost two years, I was in a series of five mental institutions, and when one place said they can no longer help me, they would just send me to another place, to another place, to another place, <laughs> basically giving me this belief um, and the impression and eventually the identity that I took on that there was something really wrong with me um, that wasn't necessarily wrong, you know, with everyone else. 
And so much, it would be much, much later that I would learn, you know, my true diagnosis. Um, and it's that of everyone that's ever lived, that's alive now, that will ever live. And the Bible calls it sin, you know, in Romans 3.23, um, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But I didn't, I was no ways near knowing that truth then. In the institutions, I went through a lot. My parents ended up putting me back into state's custody. And I went before a judge once a month who declared me INT, which is called In Need of Treatment, Title 19 in the state of Oklahoma. And while I was in institutions, I was exposed to many things and much happened. But let me just suffice it to say that I went in very depressed and I came out very, very angry. So while I was in the institutions, you know, I would become so angry from feeling unloved and abandoned that I would go into these fits of rage, um, be tackled down and held down. And they'd call uh, what they called a code green and they'd announce it through the intercoms of the institution. And these grown men would come in and wrestle me down to the floor and carry me off to seclusion. And they would strap me down and what they called a five point restraint. And they would leave me there I was eventually, though, discharged back to uh, my adopted parents and family who had moved from one part of the city to another. And so it was kind of like moving to a whole new place after being institutionalized. Not long after my discharge, uh, my father passed away from a heart attack. And in my mother's grief, she had blamed us for, for his death, saying it was all the stress that I had caused the family, all that I had put them through, and showed me the door and told me that I would never live there again. After you've been locked up that long, they don't just let you go. They'll assign you an outpatient therapist. And I had seen her on occasion. And I literally just walked across the street and I called her. And she agreed to let me live with her. In order to get into high school, a public high school, mind you, I'd been going to school in an institution. So you had to have a place of residence. So she got me into high school. And I began hanging out with, they call it the wrong crowd, I guess. Um, I hang out with people who believed about themselves like I believed about myself. I began smoking pot and dropping acid, otherwise known as LSD. Um, and I wore out my welcome very quickly there. And I came home one afternoon and all my things were on the porch. So I moved in with my 21-year-old boyfriend at the time who I'd met, him and his mother. I remember coming out while I was living there that um, her boyfriend wasn't, his mother's boyfriend wasn't really her boyfriend, but it was her girlfriend. And so I had never been you know, exposed to homosexuality. I remember calling my mom and telling her what was going on. And she said, no, you can't come back home. And so I remember uh, staying there about a year and a half. I ended up getting pregnant. We continued to to do drugs and drink. And I thought in my reasoning at the time that because I was adopted and going through all that I was, and because it was legal and I was being encouraged to make the decision, because of the situation that I was in, I decided the best thing for me to do was to have an abortion. Mind you, I didn't know that God knew us in our mother's womb and that he had a plan for us before the foundation of the world, that every hair on our head is numbered. I didn't know any of that. I just did what I thought was best at the time to survive. What little relationship I had with my boyfriend dwindled to nothing after I told him. I ended up checking myself into a drug rehab in downtown Oklahoma City after he went to prison for burglary. I kind of saw that as my way out of a desperate and scary situation. It was an adult facility, but they went ahead and let me in to no avail. I stayed there about four months and I left before I finished that program. And as I look back on 
all these attempts to get clean. And, you know, I didn't want my life to be the way it was. I didn't want to be in the situation, but I ultimately just didn't have any power within myself to change my life. And so all these attempts to change my life failed. You know, now I know without the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, you might want a lot of things, but you ultimately just have no power to do that. And so that's what I was. I left there without finishing that program. I remembered an old connection of mine who sold cocaine. So I called him up. He agreed to let me live with him and his mother, which you know presents this cycle now. From the time I woke up to the time I passed out, at this point in my life, I was always high or drinking. And I did drugs to relieve the pain of my circumstances and my poor choices. And all it did was create more and more pain and difficult circumstances. I didn't stay there very long before his mother said, you have to go. She has to leave, but not without giving me a job opportunity. Uh, she told me to go meet with two men in the same apartment complex and that they would give me a job. Seeing as I had no other options, or so I always thought, I agreed. So I went up to the apartment number that she gave me and knocked on the door, and an older gentleman answered the door. And I walked in to the job interview, and they placed a deck of cards in front of me and told me that I was going to be dealing cards for the American Legion, which was not what I was going to be doing. So I shuffled, and they said, okay. Meet us, go get cleaned up, meet us tonight, and we'll take you out and tell you the rest of the job description. You know, I'm still pretty naive up to that point about what was going to happen, but they picked me up. We went to dinner. We pulled up to a hotel um, afterward, and the elder of the two men led me up into the hotel room. He, We got into the room. He began to show me pads of paper of numbers and names, and I turned around in the room and looked at him, and his demeanor um, immediately changed. He got very stern and very straight um, and told me to strip. And so there I was, I was basically terrified. Um, and I went into survival mode, which is something that I had learned previously before then. So there I was, you know, at 17 years old, basically turning my first trick. So they say for, you know, a place to live for food, for clothes, for eventually for drugs. People have asked me, and I mean, more importantly, I've asked myself, you know, why didn't I run? scream, walk out, pick up the phone, call someone, whatever. I mean, today I can better understand this. And, you know, without a foundation, and even if I had possessed, you know, a sense of value, um, self-worth or respect for myself, I guess, there, there was no one to call at that point and there was nowhere to go. There was a new depth of shame uh, that I endured to live in and maintain um, in this environment with these two men. And it's not something that I think about often anymore, much less try and describe a whole lot, but I was basically just used for their sexual pleasure. And it was also um, a sense of, of control. These two men were gamblers. They were bookies. They would make large amounts of money on the football. And they had many betters. Um, they would go to Las Vegas and they would take me with them, but most of the time they would take me to the dope house in Southside, Oklahoma City and leave me there. And this is where I began to uh, shoot up heroin. I began mainlighting heroin, meth, crank, coke, whatever I could get my hands on, dilated uh, morphine. Because by this point in my life, and to quiet the, the shame of that life, I really did just want to die. And the sooner I could accomplish that in the least painful way I could accomplish that, the better It's kind of how I saw it. You know, and since we're addressing this overall theme in part of 
where we find our security and stability. And not that I knew this at the time, you know, but there was this, an odd sense of, I guess, eventually uh, security and stability, even through these two men, you know, who basically bought me um, off the streets and assumed this ownership of me. And, and even though I was basically ashamed and fearful and terrified of them and the whole entire situation, I still had a sense of, you know, I wasn't on the street and I had a place to sleep and I had things to eat and I had clothes to wear. And so there was still this sense, however degrading it was, of security, you know, and stability that I didn't have before. And so, you know, in this environment, um, I was raped, ripped off, and I was sharing needles with anyone and everyone. I really didn't care at this point, like I said. And But before I accomplished uh, my goal, I got very, very sick to where I couldn't even stand up. And so the younger of the two men, you know, one of these men, they were 56 and 43 years old. And the younger of the two took me to um, Griffin Memorial Hospital in Norman because I was very sick. And this is where they diagnosed me with liver disease. And they told me that I was in a chronic state in my liver, that I already had a 70-year-old liver. And if I did not quit doing drugs, I was going to be dead by the time I was 30. Well, 30 seemed like a long ways off from, I think I was 18. I remember they kind of helped me to detox and kind of nurse me back to a healthy state. I remember calling my mom and telling her the diagnosis. And she said, no, you can't come back here. You know, my mom was being taught about this thing called tough love. And she was very good at that. So um, the younger of the two men agreed to take me two and a half hours away from the city. At that point, the gambling money had run out and they had gotten into some conflict to uh, the two men. And so he moved me out to where kind of Northwest Oklahoma, where I am now. You know, he kept asking me to marry him. Um, again, he was 24 years older than me. I just kept blowing that off, but I ended up getting pregnant again. And not that I'd done anything right, as I've already shared up to this point, but having this baby seemed like a good place to maybe start. And so we got married and they told us we were going to have a, a boy and um, he'd wanted a boy and we'd bought all, all boys things. I mean, some, some of you may really relate to this, but uh, when we had a little girl, you know, he um, was standoffish, would have much to do with her at first. And so that rejection that I had experienced all my life, I was now watching kind of my daughter go through and I was continuing to go through and I didn't know how to deal with that. You know, the best way I knew how to deal with anything in life was to do drugs. And so I ventured 10 miles from there in Woodward, Oklahoma, and um, I began to shoot up methamphetamine, which is commonly known as crank. And um, there's a whole lot more detail in my book about you know, what happened during this time period. I began to be very, very afraid of their father and my addiction, plus the fear. I began getting arrested over and over. And so sometimes during the arrest, there would be just questions, questioning, interrogation, it would be more about him and I would find out about his past and who he really was. Um, and it, you know, just increased the fear in me that I needed to get away from him with my children. But I, w I had this addiction as well. So I had racked up multiple felony charges um, and I would no sooner get out on one charge before I would be arrested for something else. And suicidal thoughts continued to consume my mind. No sooner would I get out on one charge before I would be, you know, arrested for something different. You know, I had lost everything that had meant anything to me. I had had another daughter by that time, um, and I had lost temporary custody of both my girls. Their father had filed for divorce, 
And the last time I had been before the judge, he said, you know, young lady, if you're convicted on all these counts, you're looking at about 60 years in the state penitentiary. You know, and that hit me very hard. That was a very sobering moment. Suicidal thoughts continued to consume my mind. I would literally just beat my head against the cell door in the jail there until it would bruise and bleed because I was so frustrated. I didn't want my life to be in that condition, you know. I didn't want to keep making these detrimental choices and going around this cycle, but I just didn't know how to change. And I didn't have the power, like I said before, to stop. And this is where I picked up a little the little Bible that was placed in my cell. And I know now to be you know, the Gideon Bible. And I began reading in Psalms and it talked a lot about your enemies, you know, and I had acquired quite a few of those by then and namely myself. But so I began to kind of relate with the word of God. It, it spoke to me right away. And there were also two ladies that would come by my cell once a week faithfully. I remember them kneeling down by my bean hole, you know, where they give you your food in and out. And, you know, we called them the church ladies. And my question for them this particular day was, you know, do you have to go through this hell on this earth? And when you die, you can go to heaven. See, I just thought if I could die, if I could overdose, someone take me out, that it would all be over, that I could go to heaven. And um, one of them answered, no, you can ask Jesus Christ to come into your life right now and know joy and peace. And that's something that I had never really known before, you know, not really. And so, you know, I thank God today that he kept me alive because if I had died in my sin, you know, never having entered into a relationship with Christ, I would not have gone to heaven. I would have entered into a very real place called hell, not just the living hell that I was experiencing then, but it would be eternal and real and that there would be no chance, you know, of hope and no more chance at healing. And so, you know, they went on down to the next cell, not really knowing the difference that they made in my life until later. But that's exactly what I did. Uh, Desperate, I leaned against the top bunk in the jail and I bowed my head and I prayed, you know, God, I cannot do this anymore. But if you can, Jesus, then do it. You know, come into my life and be my Lord. And when I come up from that prayer, I knew. I mean, my life literally... Uh, has never been the same since that prayer, since that day. And so it was through the Word of God and what I know now to be the Spirit of God, drawing me and convicting me of my sin and convincing me. And the two ladies of God leading me in my cell, witnessing to me. And, you know, I experienced salvation and I was forever transformed. It's been a process to get where I am today, but this is where it started, you know, at my salvation, leaning against that steel hardness of that bunk with the miserable thin mattress. See, we call him and he reveals himself as savior for a reason. At my lowest place, uh, Jesus found me and he reached me in the pit of my circumstances and my consequences in his love and kindness brought me to genuine repentance and confession, which led to my salvation. In Romans 10, 9 through 13, it says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Coming up next, Barbara continues her testimony in Restored, Life After Salvation, right after this brief message. Hey, this is Barbara. You know, we all have a story. No two are the same. 
A day does not go by when I don't think of those who are lost in the darkness, because I was one of them. This is my story, a story of childhood abuse and abandonment, confinement and addiction, sexual slavery and incarceration, which exposed me ultimately to the one thing, or should I say the one who could save me. I'm a registered nurse, a wife, a mother, a gram, and a saved sinner who has been tragically damaged yet wonderfully delivered. Join me as I share my journey from lost to found, darkness to light, in the pages of my book, Rescued, Ransomed, Restored, available on Amazon or on our website, abaloves.us. Welcome back. Barbara continues her testimony and will share how her life changed and what her life is like now as a result of her salvation. Amen. So take it away, Barbara. Amen. Yeah. So I just want to start out by uh, sharing Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so I was sharing about my incarceration and my eventual salvation in the last episode. And somehow... You know, by the grace of God, I was sentenced to 10 years suspended sentence and um, also to a drug rehab, which I would have to complete, which presented a problem right away because, you know, I had tried and failed so many times as I already shared. But despite those past failures and the fear that I had at the time, I took uh, my youngest daughter and checked myself into um, Winoka Women and Children's Treatment Center. And this is where uh, seeds continue to be planted in my life, gospel seeds. There were two pastors who would come in once a week and they began to teach me the word of God. They would say Psalm 103, 12, which says, as far as the East is from the West, so far as he removed your sin from you, Barbara. And that was good news, right? For a person like me coming out of what I was and you know, in order to complete those steps there, I had to complete so many community service points. And so I would go to the church and I would wax the church bus and I would help with funeral dinners. And all the while, Brother John would tell me his testimony, how he used to be an alcoholic before the Lord saved him and called him to preach. I remember going back to my room with my daughter, Deanna. She was my youngest daughter at the time, sleeping in the bed. And I would got on my knees and I looked out the window and I remember just saying, God, if you're really the God, that Brother John is saying you are, then I'm going to need three things. That time I asked the Lord to deliver me from drugs and alcohol because I didn't want to want dope anymore. And I knew I couldn't do it on my own. I asked him to let me know the truth about my adoption because I didn't think I could really be free to serve him like he was calling me to do unless I knew about, you know, find out who I was and where I came from, what had happened to me. Finally, I asked the Lord to give me a healthy family that could love him and serve him together. And so I asked these three things, and I, those were the deepest desires of my heart, and I saw those as the greatest needs of my life, and I just kind of left it at that. I remember there was a little lady there at that facility named Patsy. She would tell me, he that is in you, Barbara, is greater than he that is in the world. I didn't even know until later, but she was quoting scripture, you know, to me. That was First John 4, 4. It says, you are from God, little children, and you have conquered them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. By the grace of God, again, I was able to complete that program and show the judge a completion certificate. I think it's one of the first things I'd ever completed, you know, in my life. But when I got out, I went through many trials 
Um, just because you've changed doesn't mean the world has, right? I had lived through a lot of what the world had to offer. And so when I got out, I went through um, many, many trials, but I was eventually led to a church where I had been loved more you know, at that church than I have, I think, my entire life. Like, they really taught me what it means to love. Um, because when you're on the street, it's all about how I can survive, how I, can I get high. It's all about me, you know, I, I, I. They taught me that it's all about Christ and serving others. And they really modeled that for me. Also, during this time, through a series of events, I was led to the state capitol in Oklahoma City, where I learned there was an adoption registry. I filled out all the paperwork, and about 90 days later, they sent me all unidentifiable information about my biological family. And I learned at that time, and again, I go into a bit more detail in my book about this, but I learned that my biological father was an alcoholic, uh, that my biological mother has MR, that's mentally retarded, or now I think the appropriate term is intellectually disabled. She has an IQ of about 36, and that I had two brothers, one a year older than me, one two years older than I am. I mean, it had some notes in there saying that it just recorded our environment as being severely deprived and that uh, doctor's reports that said that I had sustained some second, third degree burns, fractured arms, infections, things like that, you know, and some of that information was shocking to me and some of it was painful, difficult to learn, but mostly I think I was so grateful because I had asked God specifically for that and this set me free from years of not knowing those specifics. And so he was answering my prayers. You know, the word says that in John 8, 32, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And that's not only the truth of the gospel itself, but the truth about your, your own life, you know, the truth about who you are in Christ. And I had wanted to know those specific things long before, you know, I had obtained them. However, you know, God's timing is perfect. He led me to, and he revealed the pieces of the puzzle of my life when he knew I was ready. You know, I was now saved, sober, and in position to receive that truth and continue healing. By this time in my life, God had done so much already. He provided me a home, a loving church family. I'd gotten custody of my children back, and I was almost hesitant to ask the Lord for any more. But uh, I had learned Ephesians 3.20, which says, Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think or even imagine according to the power at work in us. And so I was um, watching one day a movie with my girls. It's a cartoon rendition of the story of Joseph. It's called Joseph, King of Dreams. You may have heard of it or read the story of Joseph out of Genesis. You know, God had given Joseph a gift and his brothers were jealous and ended up selling him into slavery. He was falsely accused. He was put into prison. But because of his integrity and gift that God had given him, he was raised up to lead only second to Pharaoh. And God ended up in the end reuniting him um, with his father and brothers over 20 years later. And so as I was watching that story depicted, I couldn't help but think to myself, you know, wow, God, if you could do that for Joseph, maybe you could do that for me. So I called the state capitol back up where I had gotten my records. And as of 1997, 98, that same year that I was born again in jail, um, they had established what they called um, a confidential intermediary search program. Um, and in order to take advantage of that, I had to have had my information for uh, six months and got onto a mutual consent voluntary reunion registry. 
all that just to say you kind of got on a list and had to wait. I waited that time and I called them back up. They ended up finding and contacting my biological family. They said that if they would agree to meet me and then we could be reunited Um, in a relatively short period of time, they did find all the members of my family. It's been about 19 years ago now, but right before Christmas in 2001, I went to Enid, Oklahoma to meet my oldest brother, John, who also has just an amazing story and which I describe again more in my book. After meeting him, I went right on from Enid to Sand Springs, right outside of Tulsa, to meet my biological mother and father, who were still together. And that that kind of surprised me. And then later, I was also able to meet my other brother, Robert, who was in prison um, when I found, when they found him, caseworker went in and told him, you know, your sister's looking for you. Would you like to meet her? And um, he said, yes. So he got out later. We began to correspond while he was still in prison and he got out and we were able later to meet. And so, you know, it's, it's so awesome, you know, but it's so difficult to, to find the words to describe um, when I met my parents. And so I remember going up to the little house, shock-like thing, and I walked up to the door and knocked and and my biological father answered the door. And so when he opened the door, you know, there's my height. He's like 6'3". You know, when you're adopted, you you always wonder, you know, who you favor of your biological family, you know, who you look like. And so, you know, there was my height. I went inside and uh, met my, my mother and she was sitting on the bed. Uh, they're in the living room, and I sat down beside her. She proceeded to tell me um, that just two months before I got there, of course, I had been praying, you know, that God, if it be God's will, and that He would prepare hearts and um, open the doors. And um, she said that just two months before I got there, a friend of hers had invited her to a church there in Tulsa where she went and she heard the gospel that Jesus can forgive your sin and heal you and change your life. And she went forward at that time and as I talked to a lady later who counseled her at the time of her salvation, she said, you know, the one thing your mom said she wanted from God was to meet her daughter. You know, there we were 26 years later, reconciled. God truly is the God, you know, of reconciliation and his timing, not only my biological parents, but my immediate family. And I was reconciled to, you know, my daughters. They got to have a, a, a sober and a <laughs> sane and a mother. God's a God of reconciliation. Also during that visit, they stood before me and they began to weep and they asked me to forgive them. And, you know, I know that not everyone gets that, but I was so thankful. I mean, I didn't even have to think about that. You know, it's just done. <laughs> My father got up and walked across the room and he was staring out the window for it seemed like a long time. Of course, we're all nervous, you know, and it was heightened emotion for that reunion. But he was looking out the window and he started uh pulled out his wallet and he began to look in his wallet and he was looking for something and he finally pulled out. He's like, here it is. And he handed it to me and it was a picture of my brothers and I sitting on his lap at the welfare office that many years before, uh, right before they took us. And so he had saved that picture, you know, all those years, had paint on, he was a painter. And so it had some paint, it was wrinkled and had some tears and stuff. But that was so special to me that he had saved that. You know, it spoke to me that, that he at least thought about me, you know, since then. So I took that and blew it up and framed it. And it was above my desk in my office for a long time. I mean, what a treasure that was that I got to have that. God is a God of salvation and forgiveness and sometimes reconciliation with himself first and then with others when and as he wills it.
not only did God reconcile me, like I said, with my children, I had another beautiful daughter. And so I was able to, like I said, raise all three of my girls. God gave them this saved, sober, and mostly sane uh, mother. Also, I reconciled, uh, like I said, with my biological family, my adoptive family, but now I'm a part of an eternal family. What's even better than this? We're all adopted into God's family. No one comes on their own. Uh, We have to go through repentance and faith in Christ. That's one of the most special things that I hold dear today is that I was adopted into the family of God. And it kind of, you know, every t- everywhere I go speak and share my story, you know, and there's the people of God there. Um, it's just the acceptance and the love that I've received over the years through that ministry has really made up for, you know, all that rejection that I had felt in the early years of my life. Today, I enjoy peace with God, the peace of God through His presence living inside of me. And I know today what it is to experience true joy and that no one can take away from me, again, through the Holy Spirit. Today, I have a sound mind. I have the mind of Christ, and I can receive and give love today. Something that I could not do before is just, it was very, very difficult to believe that I was worthy of of that. And today, to date, this year, I celebrate being clean and sober for uh, this summer, July, it'll be 21 years without any drug or drink. And so I give God all the glory for that. I had asked him for that and he he answered and he helped me to overcome that addiction and not only that but to heal me of the things that that basically in essence I was trying to uh, numb inside of me and escape and so he healed those things and so I no longer have the need for that and he delivered me from the power over that and so hallelujah he has called me to share my story over the nation um, in so many different settings and circumstances and just jails and prisons and drug rehabs and basically send me back into the places that I walked through to tell people that there's hope and that there's a way out and but there's only one way out. And that's through Christ. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. You know, when I was in the drug rehabs, they presented a some steps. And I understand people get a certain amount of victory uh, utilizing those. Uh, those first two, I just could not understand. You know, The third step is that I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity or made a decision to turn my will and life over to the care of God. As I understood him, well, until I was born again, I really couldn't understand who God was. And I definitely couldn't understand how to get to him. And so it wasn't until you know, my salvation that, that I was truly free. In 2008, my 10-year suspended sentence that I had shared I had received um, was finally complete. And so that kind of put me in the running for a potential pardon. And so I filled out all um, that application and all that paperwork, did the interviews. I took my friend, I appeared, appeared before the Pardon and Parole Board in Oklahoma City and got a favorable outcome. February 18th, 2013, the governor, Mary Fallon of Oklahoma, signed and approved my full pardon. And that was such a huge um, victory for me. You know, what Jesus said about me before the foundation of the world and really through his blood that I received forgiveness of sin and full pardon in his eyes came into the real and into my reality, being forgiven, being pardoned by the state, by the governor, by my peers. And so that 
in turn enabled and ushered in the answer to the call that I could answer the call into a nursing education um, and service. And so I didn't waste any time. I was already enrolled into a CNA, Certified Nurses Assistant class um, at a local Votech um, in December pending and in good faith that I would receive that pardon in February. And so I became a CNA, worked as a CNA um, while I went to LPN school. That's uh, licensed practical nursing, worked as an LPN and went on to, why not, right, to go to RN school. And they, you know, received that uh, license. Uh, They call that a registered nurse and I call that a redeemed nurse. And then just recently uh, went ahead and went online through Oklahoma Christian University to get my BSN. And so I'm just so thankful that God has truly just made a way for me out of darkness. You know, when you're a convicted felon, you can't get a job. You can't uh, really get a job that that pays well and supports you well. And so that's uh, enabled me to get a taste of of being able to do that. And also just being able to, in my line of work, pray for people, share the gospel with people uh, sometimes um, when they're you know sick or at their worst or at their lowest. And to be able to serve and give back in that way um, is just an amazing blessing. And so, you know, it's been almost a few years ago now, but also God brought a man into my life who's now my husband and who loves Jesus and who encourages and leads me and loves me. And he challenges me in the word of God and in my calling and to be obedient to the Great Commission. And I'm so thankful uh, for God answering um, that third and final request, you know, that I'd spoken of, that I would have a healthy family that can love him and serve him together. And I begged him for that. And that was like over 20 years ago. And so just there's a there's a call there, I guess, to wait upon God. And he will answer in his timing, you know, and in his in his way. You know, back in 2008, I was in an in-depth Bible study when God began to lead me to, um, I'd already been sharing my story, like I said, at women's retreats and seminars and conferences and conventions and so forth. And in this Bible study, it was, you know, God was leading me to put my story into book form. And so... Ten years later, uh, after that first step was taken to write that, um, and after some very difficult um, and devastating happenings in my life, I finally finished my book and believe you know God is fulfilling that mission and dream to bring hope and the gospel and to distribute my story and you know His ability to save in my book. We've been distributing that into jails and prisons and various other places for a couple of years now. And, you know, just all glory going to God to to bring this stuff to fruition, bringing Him honor and glory with my life. Really, all I want now is to um, bring glory and honor to Him with my life, you know, going wherever He leads, sharing His gospel and serving Him with the days that I have left is really all I want now. If God never did another amazing, kind, and mind-blowing thing in and through my life, you know, saving me and placing His Spirit in me is enough. See, if we find our significance and point to our value and worth being something to something or in someone which can be taken away or lost, then we're trusting in and placing faith in the wrong thing. Only that which is eternal and lasting and imperishable will we find the stability and security that we are truly searching and longing for. The search for significance ended for me at my salvation. 
It was the first time in my life that I had sensed that there was significance to life and to my life, the realization that there is a God and that He loved me and He sent His Son to die for me in my place. You know, I've never gotten over that. What Christ did for me, in spite of me and my sin and what He is doing in me even now as I share and you know what His Holy Spirit does through me is who I am. It is my identity, you know, and when we consider the cross and the doubt of my value and worth was forever resolved, believe in the finished work of Christ's cross, you know, the beating that he took and the blood that he poured out, knowing it would require nothing less than that to say, forgive and restore my life. It just blows me away. It causes me to worship him. I've noticed a lot of ladies, they still want a self-help speech. You know, they want a conference about how to increase self-esteem or a better appearance or, you know, three easy steps to achieve self-actualization. But what we need to realize is as long as we're still looking in ourselves or what we can do or not do or to others, instead of dying to ourselves and taking up our cross, all we will get is what we or others can offer. And most of us, you know, really have that part of the story to tell. That will fail us and leave us empty and broken every time. It's the gospel that gives life worth and value and meaning and purpose. You know, I believe and walk in the identity and the value and worth, the security and stability, which God defines for me. You know, no one else today and nothing else gets that privilege in my life and thoughts. It's no longer about who didn't love me and who doesn't want me. God loves me and Jesus demonstrated his love toward me that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. And that's Romans 5.8. If something else or someone else attempts to define who I am and try to tell me what my value and purpose are today, and believe me, they do, they try, um, and it doesn't line up with who God says I am uh, that's defined in His Word, then that message doesn't get a place in my life. It doesn't get the time of day. I'm free from needing to be affirmed or validated by others. I became free of allowing opinions to control and influence me and my decisions. Now, sometimes I do struggle through that process, but I am not defeated okay, by man's opinions. The value and worth my life has today is a direct result of who I have had to learn. God says I am, and I have learned by you know reading the Word of God. His Holy Spirit lives inside of me. And I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit. And there's no greater value than to house the living Spirit of God. And so I've heard a story, and this kind of speaks to value. You may have heard it like the $100 bill that's wadded up and crumpled up and thrown to the ground and stomped on and muddied up in the puddle and, you know, is then finally picked up again and smoothed out. But it's all wrinkled. It's all dirty. But guess what? The value of it is still $100. It's still worth $100. So, you know, God reaches down when we're all muddied up and used up and chewed up and spit out by the world and stomped on. But he picks us up and he cleans us up with his blood and 
He claims us, calls us his own. He puts a spirit inside of us and he says, you know, you're worth it to me and you have great value and you're my daughter and I have purpose for you through me. And so, you know, I guess the question is, is your worth and identity found in Christ alone? Where do you find it? And 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, I've kind of adopted this as my life verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. And look, new things has come. Everything is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We appeal to you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So my life is not my own. I was redeemed, bought at a high price, the blood of Jesus. I don't get to decide who I am. My Redeemer, the one who purchased me with his blood, decided before the foundation of the world. You see, I was chosen before the foundation of the world, says Ephesians 1, 4, to come out of the world and be holy, to be set apart for the purposes of God and his gospel. Have you been redeemed? Have you believed and received your true identity? Or are you a slave of sin? Or are you a slave of righteousness? I'm so thankful to be a daughter of the Most High and on a mission designated, led by, and empowered by His Holy Spirit. And all of this came through the message of the gospel, which led to my salvation. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. You know, because Christ laid his life down in him, I was given new life, abundant life, and eternal life. And so in turn, I follow him and I lay my life down and surrender it back to him, willingly giving my all. And sometimes that looks like me sharing the good and the bad and the ugly and details of my life only to point to him. He can deliver. And so part of being restored by God is finding our significance, our worth, our value, security, and stability in Christ and his word alone, to no longer look to the world and to others, ourselves, for our identity. God wants to be our Father, our Savior, our only God, our stronghold, our all in all. He is our everything. So, you know, we all have a story. Who is the hero of your story? Where do you look for your significance? What gives you, your value and worth? Who or in what do you find security and stability? 
And how do you define and describe your identity? The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Repent and believe. Coming up next, Barbara will talk about maintaining sobriety and stability while facing and walking through heartache and loss right after this message. A lot of prayer, work, and effort goes into this podcast. And while our goal is not to exalt ourselves or even to become widely known, we can always use help to aid us in covering our cost. We created this podcast to encourage women to open their Bibles and rediscover the great Lord. It's our first ambition to faithfully seek, follow, and obey the Lord in every step. And it's under His authority we recognize the responsibility of good and faithful stewardship. We purposefully do not have an advertising or sponsorship program. The advertising you hear on this podcast are resources we personally use and want to advocate for. Every one of them have been prayerfully chosen, and we do not charge to promote them. Occasionally, we'll share a product we're using and get a small commission. However, still, we will only vet a product that we can truly say we recommend. So while we've not created this podcast to make money, we understand that one may want to bless us with a financial gift. This is truly a blessing for us as it takes a lot to keep this program running. If you'd like to donate, please visit SeekingHoly.fm and click on the heart in the upper right-hand corner. We appreciate your contribution. Welcome back. Barbara, recently you put out a feedback post on Facebook asking those who had heard you share your story or who have read your book if there was a question someone may have wondered about or wanted to ask, or perhaps there was a subject which rose to the surface which you could elaborate on for a mini-sode. And as I understand it, you'd like to address that now. Yeah, so uh, one response that I received was referencing and pertaining uh, to a very, very painful season in my life. Uh, The height of it lasted a couple years and has had long-lasting repercussions. In fact, it was another one of those life never really was the same after situations. And so one of the questions was, Um, During this extremely painful period, you know, how did I cope? The suggestions that were offered, such as, was it an influx of godly friends? Um, Did you hide yourself in the word? You know, how did you deal with it? And why did the despair not lead you back into any type of self-harm, drugs, or alcohol abuse? And so, so first, I just want to thank you for responding to the post. Um, these are all great questions, which when honestly assessed and transparently answered, point to a deeper theme, which can be summed up at least in part by asking and answering another question. And believe me, I had to remind myself the answer to this a thousand times, which uh, while walking through that period in which I most definitely needed to have already solidified uh, well before these events went down and took place in my life. And that is uh, this question, where does my stability lie? What foundation is my life standing on when all hell breaks loose? Um, Like a song by Natalie Grant says, when the sacred is torn from your life, and you survive. Believe me, it's not if, it's when. Hard, even gut-wrenching, devastating times um, come to one and all. So I touched on in my testimony in the previous episode, 
where I find my identity, my significance, security, value, and worth. In this episode, I'm going to tend to these critical questions that my dear sister in Christ asked uh, by pointing to this blessing called stability. Um, And what I mean is a sense of and a state of mind and spirit of permanence can be uh, thought of as continuance or steadfastness and consistency. So I've shared that my life before Christ, that I had very little, if any experience with stability, I was not stable situationally, emotionally, mentally, you name it. I did not experience stability. I was easily deceived, used, chewed up and spit out by the world, so to speak. So how do we keep our sure footing when the bottom falls out? When you lose your job or when you're betrayed, um, lied about, rejected by the one or the ones that you love the most, even deserted by friends. Uh, When you receive the bad news and have to head down the hard roads, even if it was yourself, you know, who made some mistakes or sinful choices and are in need of repentance and restoration. On what does your anchor hold? You got to know before the storm comes. Uh, If you're scrambling around and hem-hawing around and wavering about who you are and what you believe when a storm comes and Satan comes knocking, desiring to sift you and seek to take everything, uh, you won't make it. You need to establish yourself in the stability and on the solid rock of Jesus Christ now. And you got to fill your mind with the Word of God today. So when the tragedy of tomorrow hits... You've got that hidden in your heart, and you've already saturated your mind with truth to pull from, a deep well of history and living waters to reminisce and remind yourself of. And when everyone else and everything else is gone or taken or has passed, you're able to minister to yourself in the Lord, so to speak, and receive directly from the Holy Spirit. So when this heartbreaking thing happened in my life, You know, I had already been clean for 11 years. I had an abiding relationship with Christ. I was saved. I was sober. I was serving in ministry. You know, I felt security, loved, and uh, I had a real place in my church family. God had forgiven and healed me. He had performed miracles and restoration in my family in many ways. You know, I loved Him and completely trusted Him. And then this thing happened. There were court proceedings that were planned and came about, which ended with a judge determining uh, my children were to live with their father. And so this happening and the way that it happened, there was manipulation and coercion, lies and threats, and the premeditation that it required to get this done, I think may very well be one of the most, if not the most, devastating things that has ever taken place in my life. I shared in my larger testimony that I had been abused and given away by my biological parents. I was given back to the state in my teen years. I was institutionalized and then on the streets where I was sex trafficked and raped and addicted and diseased. And I tried to take my own life and I ended up incarcerated and facing prison um, until my salvation. But the pain from this day that I'm referring to and this time and, you know, the lingering despair, which felt like it tore my heart in two, 
I can say was the worst. Uh, my greatest fear became a reality in those oppressive moments. The very thing that I had worked so hard to prevent from happening or to try to prevent from happening by cooperating with and allowing the Holy Spirit, you know, to invade and change my life, my identity and direction, um, to live sober, sane, and to be a safe mother to my girls. All of that felt very shattered on this day. Uh, I was shocked and horrified by the scene which took place at the courthouse. I was sitting in my car afterward, almost paralyzed. I had a moment when this pain had seized me. I was sitting in my car and I had had a silver cross hanging on my rearview mirror. Um, and it came into view and focus. And I reached up and I grabbed the cross and I tore it down from my mirror. And for those next initial moments, you know, after all three of my children were taken from me, I poured out my anger and confusion to God. And I assure you, my expressions were not pretty, polite, or properly postured. Uh, my most precious possessions had been manipulated and became victims of a deception and a system which let them and me down. That's how I saw it. And, you know, only God truly knows uh, what struck my heart in those moments. I try to describe this time in my book in a little bit more detail, but the questions for the sake of this episode are, you know, how did I manage the pain? Um, how did I cope? How did I remain sober and clean? And why did that despair not lead me back into any type of self-harm, drugs, or alcohol abuse? You know, basically, how did I stay alive? So I'm not going to minimize um, this in any way. You know, I was crushed and I was devastated. I was very confused and I was scared for my children. It was a time to stand on and fight for and with the things that I knew to be true. It was an all-out frontal attack from the adversary uh, to destroy my life and my testimony and my family. Um, and so here's what kept me alive sober, sane, and ultimately carried and brought me through this. Um, the fact that, you know, God never leaves. He never left me. He was faithful to protect and restore. The Holy Spirit was residing in me. You see, God had already delivered me from wanting or desiring drugs and alcohol. You know, any suggestion or temptation to return to that at that time, I knew and I know is always a counterfeit and it leads to destruction that I did not want to go back to. I mean, period. I have no desire for that. The enemy never comes up with anything new. Uh, it's always those same old lies, the same familiar spirits um, that we can recognize and know to resist. I also I remained in the Word of God, and I worshipped my way through this deep, dry valley. I mean, to be very clear, I was angry, I was confused, I was terrified for my children mainly, and I was devastated. Um, and so I fought. I fought in prayer. The enemy's tactics were nothing short of brutal and vicious, but they were also very obvious. You know, I was bombarded with the lies, those same old lies, which I recognized, and I knew that they were from the enemy himself, like, see, you're a horrible mother when you've abused your children. Um, you don't, they don't love you. 
you know, they don't want you. Uh, you're never going to overcome this. All of those lies were coming at me during that time. Also, through this legal process, I submitted to the legal suggestions that were made. You know, I relied upon the Holy Spirit, I mean, to remain teachable and humble. Um, I also utilized legal doors open to me at this time, um, including a friend whose husband served as my attorney and who required only a retainer fee through the entire court proceeding process. And I also testified of our situation to the Oklahoma State Supreme Court. I try to just take the attitude that if my behavior and decisions in response to the judicial atrocity uh, that was happening would determine the future possibility of my girls being rescued and returned to my home, then I wanted to do my best despite the pain and the anger and the questions and allow God to be my defender and my children's deliverer. And, you know, he exactly was that. He this was exactly the final outcome. Eventually, I also would cry. You know, I wept on and off and on during the day, and I cried myself to sleep almost every night. I mean, for months, I, did I cry out to God to take me home? You know, was I done with this life during that time? Absolutely. But at the same time, the bottom bitter line is I was forced to trust Him and live what I say I believed and what I had been taught spiritually. So there were good friends and some family who turned away from me also during this time, and they stopped speaking to me. However, there were a few also who came to visit on occasion and who I'm very thankful for, including a visit from the special lady and friend who actually posed these questions. The man I was married to at the time uh, who walked with me through this, he left and divorced immediately after the court hearings were final. And I'm thankful for a handful of people at the church I was attending who uh, then who didn't stop talking to me and would ask how we were doing and pray. I also sought a pastor for biblical counseling who was trained and certified in child trauma, uh, who helped me walk through the grief for a couple years. The loss of my children um, in the manner in which it happened triggered some very deep rejection and abandonment issues that I talked about in my testimony that I needed help sorting through and overcoming. And so I just want to say, you know, there's no shame in reaching out to godly counsel. Shame comes when we go back to and grab for those things which uh, sought to destroy our lives before in an effort to, you know, relieve that pain or to deal with the, those things. And I'm very thankful for those, uh, that godly counselor that was there. And I also just worship my heart out. You know, I led worship some at my church during this time. And, and that was very uh, comforting to focus in on the Lord and uh, just to worship Him. I also began jogging. <laughs> I know Jess has mentioned uh, her jogging discipline, but uh, during this time, um, I tried to run off some of the pain, so to speak, the sorrow and the anger and the fear, you know, of what might be happening with my children while they were gone. Um, and so I would get to the end of one mile corner. There were sections out here in the country, and so I would run to one mile corner and you know, the grief would just overtake me and the anger and I would just stop and I would scream at the top of my lungs, you know, why, God, why? Why? But I would also just stay in and would literally cry over um, and read aloud the word of God. 
And so I spent most of my time uh, during this time in the Psalms, and I developed appreciation and understanding for the life of Job. Uh, in fact, I stenciled and painted Job 1925 on the huge propane tank outside of the window of the farmhouse where I lived at the time. So even as I looked outside, it served as this bold, black lettered statement of faith and reminder that in the midst of fear and despair, Job 19.25, it says, I know my Redeemer lives. And that entire verse reads, I know my Redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand on the earth. And there was another one from the book of Job I found hopeful, uh, Job 23.10, but he knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. And so I had to arrive at a place mentally and emotionally in which I offered my most precious possessions, uh, which were my daughters, to God. So I think about when Abraham placed Isaac on the altar, you know, in the Old Testament. And, you know, we understand this to be symbolic and prophetic and ultimately pointing to Jesus, you know, he who would be provided for us as the sacrificial lamb. But there's also a verse in Genesis 22, 2, which states that God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. God recognizes that we love our children. And we know from reading scripture that Abraham obeyed. Um, once Abraham obeyed, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. And then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. And God then provided the ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. And even today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. And then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son. I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. You know, as far reaching and prophetic as this incident and declaration was and is, Abraham still was a man. He was a person who had to make the decision to lay his son, you know, the son that he loved on the altar out of obedience to God's voice and direction, trusting God and believing God would do what was best. And so in a sense, this is what I had to do uh, and where I needed to get with my own children to give them to God. I had to trust that he was going to watch over them and protect them and do what was best ultimately for them. So this was also uh, a time where the ministry that I was involved in um, and that I was leading needed to stop. I needed to sell my home and move to a different town. 
uh, I had to leave my church, which I loved very deeply, and the people there who had meant so much to me um, and helped me get to where I was with the Lord and with my walk with Him. And in essence, I was I get being pruned down to just me and God. And it was also excruciatingly painful. Uh, I was forced to land on and uh, on the only true stable thing in my life. And so after all the chips fell and all was said and done during this sorrowful season, it was Christ and His Spirit and His Word and a few, very few beautiful believers, which remained Uh, Everything and everyone else changed, was sold, left, or was destroyed. And so here's the point. And hopefully I'm answering the question through what I'm sharing. Um, The only true stability is to stand on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. You know, when the winds blow and the storms come and the hardships take their toll and even health fails, He remains. When the all frontal attack on your life comes, seeking to steal all you love and have cry, scream, run if you must, but stay in the word. Even if each page and chapter, you know, are stained with your burning tears, worship your heart out because sooner or later, the Savior you worship will bring you out and in his victory. Um, Resist Satan. And demolish the lies he comes at you with. The you're not, you'll never, you won't. You know, God doesn't love you. You've messed up too much. No one loves you, in fact. Look, your children don't even love you or want you. On and on and on. We have to recognize those lies for what they are and what source that they're from. And resist those. And replace it with the truth from the Word of God. The enemy never comes up with anything new. It's always the same old demeaning junk. And that is how we recognize it. Also, don't we don't go back to drinking and mind-altering chemicals. Um, we don't reach for that poison. There's nothing stable there for us. That is sinking sand. You know, we know it causes more and more pain. And we can choose to use the pain of the circumstances and choices of others to push and empower and press into God, or we can allow that grief to overcome us and let Satan and his demonic forces send us to isolation and beat us down um, and take us out or taint our testimony. You know, if anything was going to destroy me or shut me up about Jesus and take me out, of my race permanently. It was taking my babies, was it? My earthly enemies and the the enemy took their best shot. And guess what? Here I am, still sober, still saved, still testifying of my Savior through God's strength alone. If there were any idols in my life when this happened, there were none left after. My girls, my babies were the hardest ones and the last to let go. Besides, it's been said that children make very poor idols. You know, when he tells us he is a jealous God and to have no other idols before him, he is sternly and staunchly serious. Uh, When he says we are his, 
and we're bought at a high price and we are sealed. He fiercely protects us, defends us, and yes, dear daughter of God, he disciplines, prunes, and proves us to be faithful, and he brings us forth as gold for his glory. He doesn't put up with predators, wolves, and accusers forever. He moves, and he sifts, and he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. So allow this to sober us and cause us to diligently keep our eyes on and focus in and seek his face. None of these things can shake my foundation and compromise my stability in Christ. See, nothing else is worth my life, my devotion, my worship, my all. God remained and I remained in Christ. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. There's a passage out of Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 through 38 that says this. Don't assume that this is Jesus speaking, that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. The person who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And the person who loves son or daughter more than me and whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You know, my stability, our stability has to be found in Christ alone. Uh, Because my life was built and established and anchored on the rock of Christ Jesus prior to these events, you know, when the rain and the storms of the torrent came, leaving nothing untouched or unturned, it is he who carried me, you know, being found in him and truly loving him and the work he has done in my life is what caused me to remain alive and sober and not self-sabotage, but still desire to offer my all as an offering Simply put, you know, I hate the sin of drug addiction. I hate alcohol. I hate the pain that those caused. His word and pouring my heart out in worship is what maintained my sanity when the storm hit and the flood of life circumstances came. You know, it's not that I avoided all of that. It was that I was called on to walk through that and watch Christ be faithful through it. Jesus speaks of two different foundations in Matthew 7, 24. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. And my relationship with Christ stands. And his promises remain. And this is enough. Psalm 18.2 The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God, my mountain where I seek my refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. Psalm 18.31 For who is God besides Yahweh? And who is a rock? Only our God. Psalm 1846, the Lord lives. 
May my rock be praised. The God of my salvation is exalted. These were some of the Psalms that I wept over and relied upon and drew strength from during this time. Psalm 1914. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 31.3. For you are my rock and my fortress. You lead and guide me because of your name. Psalm 42. He brought me up from a desolate pit out of the muddy clay and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. And Psalm 62.2 and 6. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I will not be shaken. Hallelujah. So some questions that we can apply here to ask ourselves, you know, and I'd like to offer the same questions to those listening today that I was asked to answer and I was called upon to give an account to. When the storms come and when life seems upside down and when things which can be taken are And when those you love leave or betray or lie or die, when the enemy comes with his accusations and attack, and when God allows even severe pruning, how did you manage the pain? How do you cope? How do you remain sober and clean? Why does despair not have to lead back into types of self-harm, drugs, or alcohol abuse? And how are you staying alive and abiding in Christ? Stay tuned as we continue our series, sharing our testimonies and sharing the gospel. More coming up after this. Hey, this is Barbara. You know, we all have a story. No two are the same. A day does not go by when I don't think of those who are lost in the darkness because I was one of them. This is my story, a story of childhood abuse and abandonment, confinement and addiction, sexual slavery and incarceration, which exposed me ultimately to the one thing, or should I say the one who could save me. I'm a registered nurse, a wife, a mother, a gram, and a saved sinner who has been tragically damaged yet wonderfully delivered. Join me as I share my journey from lost to found, darkness to light in the pages of my book, Rescued, Ransomed, Restored. Available on Amazon or on our website, abbaloves.us. Barbara, you've blessed us in these episodes, and you've blessed myself working with you to get these produced. Thank you for your willingness and attention to share your story with us. In this episode, you've threaded many topics throughout like identity, significance, security, worth, and value, subjects that we believe have touched every woman's life to some degree or another, including our own. You've also mentioned that where we search for these things really determines whether we walk in truth and victory or deception and defeat. These can tend to motivate and fuel the decisions we make each and every day, and sometimes without us even recognizing it. So now that you've shared parts of your story with us so generously, I know that there are some items you want to address. Yeah, thanks, Jess. Um, So there's been a lot of talk, especially in the past couple few years, 
of not replacing, you know, sharing our testimonies with sharing the actual gospel message. And so, you know, I would like to be very clear that it's not the sharing of our testimony, my story, which is God's power for salvation, but it is the sharing and the communication and the proclamation of the gospel uh, that God has ordained as the vehicle by which the Holy Spirit uses to draw and convict, convince, and ultimately convert people unto salvation. Uh, It may seem a bit elementary, but our nation and denominations as a whole uh, seem to have drifted maybe far from uh, sharing a clear gospel as the main priority and ultimate power by which we are saved. So if you hear me say nothing else um, on this episode or really the entirety of this podcast for that matter, uh, please hear me when I say this. There is no word or truth, no story or testimony more important and of greater value, or which is more anointed, powerful, containing life-changing potential than the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has opened so many doors over the past 20 years for me to share my story. He doesn't seem to have changed his mind um, in that regard. Um, And we are certainly called to be his witnesses. And that without a doubt involves in part sharing the saving difference, believing the gospel, uh, being transformed by Jesus and following him has made and is making in our lives. Uh, Big Daddy Weave, you may have heard of them, released a song about four years ago titled My Story. And in that song, it says, to tell you my story is to tell of him. And also within the lyrics, it mentions an old hymn, uh, quote, this is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. So I believe, you know, there is a time and a place uh, for both the gospel and our stories. You know, just as the people uh, whose stories throughout the page of the Old Testament point ultimately to Jesus, the coming Messiah and King, and then the New Testament folks, you know, pointing to the one who came and is the perfect Lamb of God. He was crucified, resurrected, and ascended. And as His people, we now not only speak of all that, but pointing to the second coming of Christ. And make no mistake, Jesus Christ is the hero of all history and certainly the hero of my story. Jesus is Savior, Lord, and King of my life. In Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And so I would be amiss if I didn't at least share the main themes of the gospel as I've been graciously allowed this platform uh, for a season. Um, now, each one of these themes could be you know, extensively and theologically expounded upon for hours and hours, even days and days. Um, and we could never, even if we tried, exhaust uh, the richness and depths of the genius of God's beautiful plan and work of redemption of mankind. I like what one well-known preacher and missionary said, and I quote, you know, each generation of Christians is a steward of the gospel message. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, God calls upon us to guard this treasure that has been entrusted to us. 
I also love and often share a short account of D.L. Moody, who was an international evangelist of great renown uh, back in the 19th century, and who is named um, in this scenario, and it goes like this. A woman once approached the great evangelist D.L. Moody to air a grievance. The woman said to him, Mr. Moody, I don't like the way you do evangelism. Well, ma'am, let me ask you, how do you do it? Moody asked. She replied, I don't. And Moody responded, well, I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. So it seems to hold true uh, sometimes that the loudest, cruelest critics uh, are the ones often sitting on the sidelines, so to speak, um, and not sharing at all. All God's children are called to share the gospel, uh, men and women alike. The gospel isn't just the intro or the side hustle to be tacked on to a clever presentation. Um, it really is the message. Um, it's the message of our salvation, hope, and progress of sanctification, and the source which instigates and fuels the very purpose for our being. Another gospel preacher said this, One truly born again of the Holy Spirit does not receive the gospel as an addition to his previous life, but in exchange for it. To receive one is to lose the other. I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 and 25. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Or whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. You see, Christ is the very source and sustenance. He becomes our life. Some look at those who live in such a way and, and call them radicals and fanatics or even freaks. Um, but knowing Christ, being a follower of Him is an exclusive, all-inclusive, surrendered life, a sold-out life. You know, we're not going to suffice in one podcast, every jot and tittle of every powerful point which can be made about every aspect of this gospel. And frankly, you know, I'm simply a disciple. I'm a follower, a learner of Christ, I'm a student of His Word. So I will, though, while fully relying on the Holy Spirit, do my best and try. And so, you know, what is this gospel? There's four essential themes which make up the very core of the gospel message. First, the justice of God. Uh, you see, God is a just judge. He has already judged sin, and there is a judgment still coming. Well, he will separate those who are his from those who refuse to repent and believe the gospel. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The Bible talks about either Bema or a great white throne. Prophesied back in Isaiah 53 is how God was going to punish and propitiate sin. The sentence fell on Christ. Verse 4 there, it says, struck down by God and afflicted. He was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. Verse 10, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. My righteous servant will justify many. He will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty spoil because he submitted himself to death and was counted among the rebels. 
yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. That's us. That's me, you know, the rebels, the sinners. And that's our Jesus, who God, the righteous judge, was pleased to crush him on our behalf. In Romans 1.18, it says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 2, 5 through 8, but because of your hardness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will repay each one according to his works. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9, since it is righteous for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to reward with rest you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels, taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. So we can think of justness as doing whatever it takes, you know, necessary or required. If I punish my child beyond what is necessary for the correction, sometimes we would call that abuse um, or cruelty. But God is not an abuser or a tyrant. He did exactly what was necessary and nothing more, nothing less to diagnose and offer cure for our condition. You know, which begs the question, why in the world did God have to go to such horrible, dramatic, traumatic lengths as the brutal, bloody cross where our Lord and Christ was murdered? The answer to this leads to the second essential theme, which is the radical depravity of man is sometimes called. You know, I call this the bad news of the good news of the gospel. Um, see, the good news is so good because the bad news is first really so bad. And, you know, all people suffer in essence from the same spiritual thing. Uh, we seem to like to categorize folks, but we all have the same spiritual diagnosis. And there is only one message which has the power to save, deliver, and set us free. The gospel of Jesus Christ reveals we all have an evil nature and are enslaved to sin. You know, some hate this part and really try and water this part down and make it an easier to swallow. Um, but this is like the first step, you know, of believing. Um, thank God the good news doesn't end here. However, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, ladies, I was so broken and jacked up that when this verse and truth finally intersected my life, and mind at about 25 years old. And I'm going to talk a little more about this uh, in my testimony, but it, it was like music to my ears. It was like a, such a relief. I finally knew what was wrong with me, you know, what, what I was struggling with day in and day out, what I couldn't overcome. And that everyone, not just me, you know, everyone alive that had lived and that will ever live, is in the same boat. We're all in the same spiritual boat called sin. Colossians 2.13 tells us that we aren't just broken, you know, but we're, we're dead. And it says spiritually here that, and when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. And Ephesians 5.8 tells us that we aren't only dead, but we were darkness. It says, for you were once darkness, but now you see, 
The gospel also relays that all unbelieving men uh, stand condemned before God and that God's wrath abides and remains upon that person, that we all deserve death. And under this wrath of God, we're all going to die in due time if we do not repent. John 3, you know, a lot of people have memorized or maybe know John 3, 16. But if we keep reading there um, in 18 through 19, uh, whoever believes in him, speaking of Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. And this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. And verse 36 says, the one who believes in the son has eternal life, but the one who refuses to believe in the son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. So, you know, the bad news, yet the truth, and part of the gospel that we have to communicate um, is that we're all sinners, and we really all deserve the wrath and punishment of God, which is what the Bible is very clear about. The third essential theme, which can fall under the nature of true conversion and the biblical basis for assurance. And the Bible defines this with several terms you may have heard. They're kind of big words, regeneration, sanctification, justification, and eventual glorification. Let's just take this regeneration first. The great part um, of the good news is we could not do, not even on our best hair day, Jesus did. The reality of our situation um, is dire, it's despairing, and it is desperate. We cannot save ourselves. You know, we cannot uh, change our sinful nature with a behavior modification program. And there's plenty of those out there. I went I tried plenty of those and failed. We cannot cure ourselves. We cannot find peace and reconciliation with God apart from Christ Jesus and His finished work. Salvation um, is a total work of God on our behalf from start to finish. It would have never naturally occurred to me um, to follow and serve Christ. Okay, I can assure you that I did not wake up one day in a jail cell facing many years in prison, which is true, losing everything that meant anything to me, including almost losing my own life and decide all of a sudden, you know what, I need to repent. You know, I need to be saved and born again. You know, I need to follow Jesus. No, it didn't happen that way. Um, it was what I know now to be the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. He came and He convicted me of my sin. Um, it was no longer everyone else's fault. It was me and God. And He convicted me that I was a sinner. Um, he convinced me of my need for a Savior who was revealed at that time as Jesus Christ. And ultimately, He converted me Okay, unto this salvation and this rebirth and this new life that I now stand and enjoy. Titus 3, 5 says, He saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy, through the washing of, there's that word, regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So I've heard it said, uh, I believe it was maybe Jonathan Edwards, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. 
And I can certainly attest to this. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to repent of our sins, uh, meaning to turn away from them, to forsake them, to leave them altogether and believe. Uh, Believe what? We believe the gospel. He promises those who repent, believe, and obey the call will receive a gift, the Holy Spirit, to live in them, to be sealed by the Holy Spirit as a down payment for what's to come, as well as he's the comforter and a counselor. He's the spirit of truth right now, and they will have eternal life. On to this next word, justification. Hebrews 9.22, according to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So the cross is essential. It is considered this culminating work of God, which his wrath was satisfied. So on the cross, you know, Jesus, our spotless, perfect Lamb of God, drank the full cup of wrath and died in our place. His death and resurrection serves as an atoning sacrifice, a propitiation for our sins. Jesus was crucified, buried, and raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Christ became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God through him. And that's 2 Corinthians 5.21. Romans 4.25 says he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Romans 5.16-18. And the gift is not like the one man's sin. This is talking about Adam. Because from one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation. But from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in, there it is, justification. 17, since by the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So then, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act, there is life-giving justification for everyone. And so we've addressed regeneration, justification, and now I'm going to talk a little bit about sanctification. So true conversion, um, salvation produces a genuine repentance and ongoing sanctification will ensue. I know we talked a little bit about this in the first episode, uh, but 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is God's will, your sanctification. Um, So it's the process of becoming more and more holy, uh, like Christ in our thoughts, motives, our conduct. Proof, so to speak, of true conversion is this ongoing growth in holiness, remaining in Him and producing good fruit. So also part of sanctification is discipleship. Sincere and costly, even sometimes discipleship always accompanies genuine conversion, requiring radical demands on those who follow Jesus. The Bible mentions such as hating everyone and anything else in life in comparison to allegiance to Him, including one's own life. talks about denying self, coming out of the world and being separate from the lusts, indulgences, and idols, considering ourselves dead to sin, not looking for excuses to remain in it, endurance through tribulations, persecutions, and various sufferings are just some of what would be evidence the Bible talks about of true conversion. Profession of faith alone um, is not sufficient. 
one's life must bear the fruit of repentance and the Holy Spirit in increasing measure. And so finally, the gospel warns about uh, future judgment and really the terrors of hell and permanent separation from anything loving and of God. Jesus spoke more than any other prophet or apostle about a great day of judgment that's coming when all will be separated as sheep from goats. Many, even a multitude, will hear, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. This week, our pastor preached a verse from Luke chapter 12, verse 4 through 5. Um, It says, And I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body, and after that can do nothing more, but I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has the authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. You've probably heard it said so true. God will not be mocked. Uh, The scriptures encourage us to examine ourselves, and this is a great time to do that. Attending and being a member of a church is awesome. It's not wrong. However, simply going to church um, has never saved anyone. You know, we become a child of God and a member of the family of God at this true conversion that I'm talking about. It's not, you've, you've heard the argument, you know, once saved, always saved. You know, there's quite an issue with that. It's not once saved, always. It's if truly saved, if truly converted by the Holy Spirit always saved. One must be born again, you know, by belief in the gospel, evidenced by the fruit of repentance. If you're listening today and the Holy Spirit, while I'm presenting the gospel, is convicting you and convincing you of your sin and need of the Savior, I would invite you to respond with believing Him, you know, receive Him, leave for good your life of sin, repent, follow and serve Him, for the rest of your life. Amen. So all these essentials, um, the justice of God, the radical depravity of man, the nature of true conversion, and the biblical basis for assurance, including the future judgment, can be presented and formatted simply or as theologically precise and detailed as one desires. But to some degree, um, they all should be referred to or touched on in sharing the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stay with us as we wrap up our series with a special Q&A session. More to come after this. Looking to take your Bible reading to a deeper level? Check out the Blue Letter Bible, an online Bible-centered resource of study tools linked directly to Bible passages, including commentaries, encyclopedias, maps, images, and much more. Your daily Bible reading will come alive as you explore the context of passages by expounding upon text and audio commentaries, search scriptures, and examine the original meaning of Hebrew and Greek words utilizing the lexicon feature. So, if you're wanting to dive deeper into understanding God's Word, download the Blue Letter Bible app or visit blueletterbible.org. Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the wrap-up of our series, Discovering Our Identity in Christ, Barbara's Testimony of Restoration. Barbara has shared her amazing story this week and has touched on some interesting subjects, including self-identity, significance, and redemption. 
Now, we have kind of established a format last week for determining topics and formatting shows, and we sort of thought we were going to blow it out of the water when we attempted to fit Barbara's testimony into it. As I understood it, Barbara usually gives her testimony in three parts, and here I came asking her to divide it into five. Thankfully, she's been an awesome sport about it. The Lord really has helped us to get this done. So one of the ideas we came up with was to do a sort of Q&A. So Barbara, it's fun to have you on the other end, kind of doing a question and answer. And our first question is, considering all you've been through, and I'm certain you must get all kinds of questions from different women. I know you've traveled the country promoting your book, which tells your story. Above all the answers you had the opportunity to give, what is it you want women to take away the most? Wow. Yeah. Hey, thanks um, for asking that. So a couple things um, immediately come to my mind. Uh, the first thing is, you know, since my salvation in a jail cell about 22 years ago now, God has instilled within me this insatiable desire to share with and offer others what has been freely given to me. Uh, I want ladies to know that that there's a way out, uh, but only one way out. You know, we live in a culture and a world that's constantly telling us there's many ways to God, you know, and to happiness and contentment. And what I've found to be true, what I want to share most is this, you know, in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, I didn't find this one way. I learned that Jesus found me. You know, I assure you, I didn't wake up one day in a jail cell having almost lost my own life and including everything worth anything to me and decide to follow Christ. You know, he pursued me. He called me. And through the Holy Spirit, he came for me. And he found me. Um, you know, there are women who will listen to this and who God is right now pursuing and calling to salvation. Hallelujah. You know, I encourage you, if you're listening, to respond to Him with humility, repentance, willingness just to surrender to Him in prayer. You know, believe Him and receive Him and desire to follow Him. So here in Salvation in Christ, there is freedom. I'm here to tell you there's true love. There's perfect peace. There really is complete joy. There's a purpose for our lives and a point to it all. There's one who can rescue, one who can ransom our lives, one who is able to restore us to who he created us and intends for us to be. His name is Jesus. And may you receive him and be saved today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. You know, so if by listening you receive or take away anything from my story or this podcast, know that what I've been commissioned and sent to tell you is that there is hope that all things are possible in Christ. No matter your situation or your circumstances, there is hope. Never give up. Turn to Christ. He is everything he says he is, and he is able to accomplish all he says he can. And he will bring you out and through. So victory is in him alone. Amen. Barbara, I just... 
thank you for your story and thank you for sharing it. It mustn't be easy to do, but I appreciate so much that the theme in, in your story here in this podcast and in talking with you in our dialogue off the air, as well as in your book, is a theme of hope and that idea that all things are possible in Christ, that there is no place that he can't reach and there's no mountain that he can't overcome. I love in the Old Testament where God says, what is too difficult for me? Mm. And I just think of his majesty, his greatness. There's nothing beyond his reach and also his great mercy and love. And so I thank you so much for your story. It's so powerful. And I know so many people are looking forward to getting to hear about it this week. And I want to ask you, you seem to mention both in this episode and in your book, those who impacted you along the way. If you could share or say anything to them today, what would that be? Yeah, amen. Um, Thank you uh, for this opportunity uh, as also just to be able to share Christ. Um, Yeah, I also would like to mention and honor those who, you know, in my hardest, darkest, lowest moments were there. I'm so thankful for these who showed up when I was so lost and confused and broken and in need of so much. My memory of them in those desperate moments and times serve as a constant reminder and example for me in my own walk to now be the one who goes out and becomes that person for another woman who may still be lost and addicted or incarcerated or desperate, you know, in need of salvation. So I will mention um, these precious ones a bit um, in the first episode. A couple ladies in particular, they hadn't lived any kind of life like uh, the inmates and I had lived. And yet they exercised the courage to come into a jail and just to offer copies of God's word and to pray with us, to share the gospel and to encourage us Um, one special one, Miss Sharon, uh, she's gone on to be with the Lord now, but she led mm-hmm. me to Christ. Um, and she was a librarian, you know, and we formed such a special bond and relationship after I got out of jail and just so happened to join the same church as, as her later. Um, and I was so thankful that she uh, agreed to endorse my book. And hers is in the very print pages there of it. I also think back about Linda, who came to my apartment when I was more lost than a goose in a hailstorm, so they say. Um, But she knocked on my apartment door, came in, sat with me in my front room, kindly shared with me, prayed with me, and invited me to her church. You know, and I think about Brother Jim, um, the pastor who, as I looked up one day in the courtroom, Uh, while waiting for the judge to enter for one of the many charges and criminal cases I was arrested for and charged with. And I was sitting there on the other side of the courtroom and I looked up and there he was. Uh, And when I saw him sitting there, you know, it spoke deeply to me. It was like a ray of light in a very dark, depressing place. And he represented the presence of God to me on that day. Pastor Jim simply showed up for my court hearing. Um, However, to me, it had inexpressible encouragement and comfort 
and it gave me some hope, you know, and hope, my friends, is priceless. And then there was Conietta and Jennifer and Sonny. These were the female jailers who would book me into jail and who every single time and who were kind to me, despite the destructive cycle that I was repeating. And there was Pastor John and Robert who would come in to the drug and alcohol treatment center and begin teaching me the word of God. And then Patsy, who worked at the same treatment center, who would speak truth from scripture with me before I even knew it was scripture. And also Lana, um, who became such a dear friend to me. Um, She was volunteering her time in a clothing room. Uh, She was folding and organizing donated clothes. Um, Who I met in the homeless shelter you know, after I was incarcerated um, and who reached out to me with kindness and I'll never forget her gentleness. And she would pray with me and she invited me to her church. And by, you know, mentioning and honoring these as such an important part of my story in life, and I pray it is an encouragement for ladies in Christ to remember that we are his ambassadors, you know, and his representatives as though he is making his plea through us. And we are to obey the Great Commission and to go into all the world and share the gospel. And I am eternally thankful for these ones who did that and intersected my life. Um, These left their comfort, their church buildings. They went out into the sometimes referred to as dark, scary, hard places of life with the light of Christ. And they dared to reach out to me and share Jesus and the gospel of his salvation and the word of God. And they offered prayer and their time and their resources. And I am so very thankful for these precious people. And I want to highlight, you know, how that they obeyed the call of Christ and the gospel in the real world and how it serves as an example to me uh, to go and offer the same to others. Um, Disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Um, May we be the women God has called us and equipped us to be for those still lost and searching for the true significance and security and stability that's only found in Christ. Amen. And what an encouraging testimony. What an encouraging reminder for those who are ministering in our prisons or even ministering in small ways, seemingly small ways, like visiting someone or just inviting them to church. This is such a testimony even to that alone as to the impact that we never know the impact that we are giving. Maybe it seems like something very simple and small to us, but look at this effect. I mean, soon we're going to hear what that did for you. Yes, absolutely. One of the things that I really wanted to do was to reach back, you know, in the places where I had come through and came from. And so, yeah, I've visited many different county jails. Um, Sometimes, uh, you know, when I would speak at a conference or at a church, um, the leaders there would set up an opportunity for me to also go into the local county jail. And, um, you know, I had began a ministry, you know, for me, it wasn't enough just to go into the jail and then leave or to the prisons and leave. Um, 
never to be seen again. You know, I really had a, a desire to disciple as well. You know, the Great Commission says, go into all the world and share the gospel. Um, but it also says to teach them to obey all that I've commanded. And so part of that commission for me was to um, open up my home for women who were coming out of prison or coming out of jail. And so we did that for a couple of years. Um, um, and yeah, so these women, these people in my life really, like I said, demonstrated for me what I needed to now go and do, which is to reach back and out to those that are still, you know, in those hard places. Wow, girl, that is so amazing. And I have heard it said about prison ministry in particular is a difficult ministry. It's one that is a little intimidating to people. And it's such a blessing that there are those out there giving back. And I think this is also a great reminder that even if we can't go into the prisons or the jails for whatever reason, you know, at the time of this recording, we are in quarantine, but we can pray for prisoners. There is hope and God does answer those prayers. He does call people to himself. So in this episode, I know you talk a lot about things that you are involved in. So let me just cut right to the chase. What are you up to these days? <laughs> are you kidding? I know Jessica eats all day. I'm, <clears throat> I'm all about the podcast. So, <laughs> so one of the visions that uh, God was pretty clear uh, that was for my book um, was to get into the hands of ladies who are in prison and especially in the state of Oklahoma, our state has been known for quite some time as a number one in the number of incarcerated women in our country and also in the world per capita. And so um, it was just my desire to be able to offer uh, the gospel and a story of hope of someone who's come out of those things that they may still be struggling with. And so, you know, the goal for to get my my book into the hands of incarcerated women, which God has done. He, um, and is doing, he opened up a door for Mabel Bassett. It's a, um, women's prison here in the state of Oklahoma. And so, um, we went in and, and shared there and under a, uh, women's Bible study called joy Bible study. And we had, I believe it was seven women come to Christ. Um, in that, uh, that Bible study and just be able to distribute my book to those women. So there's people that offer donations to make that possible. And uh, so I'm kind of waiting right now for an open door to go into another ladies prison called Eddie warrior. It's also here in Oklahoma. So yeah, God um, gave us the vision and he is bringing it to fruition. This week, we've somewhat injected into your testimony these elements of self-identity, significance, and redemption. And you begin your testimony sharing about your feelings of rejection, starting at abuse, foster care, and adoption. If you could distill your message down and connect with those who felt rejected in such a deep way, what would you like them to know? There's a lot of... Um younger um, women who have come through the foster care system or that have been adopted that struggle with identity, that struggle with feeling wanted um, and uh, feeling that they belong. And so my story, I've noticed 
um, reaches out to them and to be able to relate to that and really point to that, you know, again, our identity and our worth are found in Christ alone and that there is a family waiting for them and it's the family of God. Um, and, you know, we're adopted into to the family of God. So I know that my story really speaks to those people um, and those children. Amen. I have a lot of friends who it's been placed on their hearts to foster children. And I know it's not an easy calling. It's a lot of work, yes. um, whether you have young ones or older ones, short term, long term. Is there anything that you think would be helpful for them to know? Yeah. So sometimes it's um, maybe a glorified uh, endeavor that maybe parents aren't completely prepared for. I know there's a lot of training out there now that more so than there were in years past. Um, I was uh, I, I was doing some seminars for the Baptist General Convention of Oklahoma for a while. And one of the seminars that I was presenting was um, on adoption. And there's a book that I always love to recommend, and it's called 20 Things Adopted Kids Wish Their Adopted Parents Knew. Um, I mean, of course, along with my story that relates directly to the the adopted child or the foster child. Um, but this book is really kind of, you know, expresses like the heart of the adopted child to the adopted parent that the, the parent might not be able to understand or relate to otherwise. And so I always like to recommend that book. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, I could go on for about that forever, Jess. Um, I get it. <laughs> And it's so great that you're passionate about that. And I think that is very helpful, even having that resource, because I do have a lot of friends who are fostering and some of them who are adopting. And I think that's very helpful. And I know that a lot of um, one thing that a lot of them have in common is that uh, whether they're fostering or adopting, they're looking for ways to connect to these children where a part of their lives uh, is a mystery to them. And so therefore Part of the child is a mystery to them. And of course, they don't want it to be that way. Right. So, you know, my heart really does go out to adopted parents because there is no way to fully prepare, I think, for the issues of a child who you dearly love, you you absolutely wanted. Um, and yet they may have gone through things that really prevent them from being able to maybe receive that fully or accept that. Um, this, you know, it's, it's neither, neither the child's fault nor the parent's fault. And yet it's on the table to have to, to deal with. And it really does characterize, you know, uh, the life of the child for potentially a long time. I mean, I totally relate to that. My parents did what they thought was best when those things began to, um, come out and the reality of being abandoned and being having come from severe abuse really kind of entered into reality for me. You know, they turned to some secular institutions and the things that the professionals were telling them would be best for me at the time. Um, but really, um, it's a sacrificial agape love that requires that only God can uh, provide. And, um, it's doing what's best for someone uh, just for the sake of, you know, for them. Um, 
But yeah, my healing really did come through nothing secular or institutional. It, it came through um, the love of God and the healing power of Christ. Amen. In light of what you just said about sacrificial love and loving a person, at some juncture in this podcast, we are going to talk about loving others. And uh, there's people in my life, I think everybody can think of at least one person in their life that they love and they know or they're concerned about. Maybe they're battling some sort of addiction and seem unreachable. And I think your message gives a lot of hope, primarily the hope that sometimes we aren't able to physically care for someone battling addiction specifically. Maybe we can't financially provide for them or, or maybe it's not safe to do that. We realize that there is nothing better that we can do for a person than to pray for them. And hearing your story and knowing your story, I think that just gives so much encouragement to keep praying, to keep fighting for those people in prayer and an opportunity to empathize a bit, because I think we all have a tendency or a lot of us have a tendency. I know I've done it to begin to just see their choices instead of the actual person. And your story helps bring that back to light and make mm. it human again. Wow. Amen. So I think about um, one of the um, one of the questions that I get asked most frequently over the last two decades of sharing my story um, when I open it up for questions is this. Um, people ask about my adopted parents, my adopted mom. Of course, my adopted father passed away, but um and how our relationship is today. And so we went through a very, very difficult time where just what you're saying, she um, had to set boundaries, you know, and she realized that she wasn't going to be able to, to help me or s save me, so to speak. Um, and so she learned this thing called tough love um, and let me go. And that was so very painful, you know, coming from just a place where I was already feeling abandoned and rejected, but I was making decisions that were so unhealthy that other people needed to set boundaries, you know, with me. And, you know, the bottom line there, as we talked about my mom and I later, years later, after, I, you know, I'm saved and sober, she asked me, you know, was I too tough or was there something else? that I could have done that you think may have helped, um, that I didn't do. And I mean, the, we could go back and forth on that question all day long, but really, you know, the bottom line is nothing was going to, to help me until, um, I experienced the love of God through Christ and my salvation ultimately that delivered me. Um, and so there, you know, it's very hard, but people, people can't be our savior. Our parents can't save us, but only Christ can. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Barbara. And here we have the last question of the episode. 
The last question is a super easy one. So Barbara, if we want to go online, we want to learn more about you. We want to follow your story in your book. Right. Where can we get it? So uh, copies of my book are available on Amazon and that would be Kindle version and paperback or signed copies um, are available on our website. And that's abbaloves.us. And there we are. Barbara, thanks so much for being a guest on our show. And to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. We look forward to having you back next Monday at 8 a.m. Eastern Time for our new series, Finding Peace, Rest, and Joy Without Forcing It. See you then. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified when new episodes are released. Also, please feel free to rate and review our podcast and share it with all your friends. Thank you for spending your time with us. We hope you're leaving with a deepening fascination to fellowship with the one who has created you for his purpose and desires to show you more of his goodness every day. 